everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 6, issue 276, R-Type and R-Type 2. You can play along with us on the Cane and Rinse podcast. If you like to play the games and complete them sort of around the time the podcast is due to come out, it's a lot of fun, especially if you like to avoid spoilers. So the entire schedule up to and including issue 300, can you believe it, you can find over at caneandrinse.com. But if you're looking into the next month or so, you will want to dig out or download or whatever. Source somehow Life is Strange. That's been a PS Plus game recently. Uh, After that, it's Joust, the Williams coin-up uh, from Days of Yore. Following that, Legacy of Cain, Soul Reaver, uh, which you can still download for PlayStation on PSN. Following that, it's Until Dawn. I think that's a PS Plus game coming up as well. Marvellous. Somebody at Sony likes us. And following that, it's Super Hexagon. Head to canerince.com for that schedule, as well as features, articles, reviews, and links to all the other bits and bobs, Facebook and YouTube and so on. And if you enjoy what we do, you can support us via our Patreon, patreon.com slash We're currently aiming to hit a target of $3,000 a month by the end of the year. Uh, and that will enable us to really go full time with Cane and Rinse and make even more podcasts, double the number uh, per year to 100 and uh, so we're just asking that minimum donation of a dollar a month or more if you wish and if enough of you do that we can really take cane and rinse to the next level if you'd like to buy a cool t-shirt or a bag you can do that at shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash cane and rinse good quality merch is available and we also have our other podcast of course do subscribe to sound of play Uh, we've just passed 100 sound of play podcasts where we celebrate our love of video game music we also interview community members composers and other people from other podcasts it's a lot of fun please review rate subscribe this show that show uh, on itunes or wherever you get them from now joining me leon cox in issue 276 are our very own michael croder hey hi and returning irregular regular guest the lovely dan clark hi dan hi it's great to be back again and sadly, uh, our also uh, one of our other favourite uh, irregular regulars, uh, shoot 'em up fanatic, the Simon Cole, the Sonic Mole, uh, was due to join us. But sadly, real life has got in the way. Uh, we, we will miss him, but we will try to do our best in your stead, uh, Simon. So, our type. This comes from the stable of Irem, uh, and at the point that this came out. Um, Irem were, uh, had been known for um, doing the arcade versions of the Load Runner series, which was by Brode Bunner in the home. Uh, they'd also done another uh, Broderbund license to the arcades, which was Spelunker, uh, a sort of forerunner, spiritual predecessor of Spelunky, of course. And you can find an HD Spelunker game on PSN, interestingly enough. Uh, but perhaps the game I was most familiar with for Irem at this point was Kung Fu Master or Spartan X as it was in Japan. How um, about uh, Moon Patrol before that? Moon Patrol, oh, of great course. Game. I always associated Moon Patrol because it was licensed to Williams with Williams, but actually, yes, you're, you're yeah, quite right. Yeah, it's an Irem game and it's done by the same guy who programmed um, Kung Fu Master, uh, yeah. uh, Takeshi Nishiyama, who of course went on to. Uh, create Street Fighter 1 and then went on to SNK for uh, to do the Fatal Fury, King of Fighters series and all those SNK fighters. 
amazing legacy, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and now I've got the Moon Patrol music in my head. And also Ten Yard Fight I used to play at the arcade as well, um, which was a, a US gridiron American football game, uh, which was uh, actually a lot of fun, but I didn't really understand American football in 1983 because they hadn't started televising it over here at that point. So it was it was a it was a bit of a mystery. Uh, but that was another interesting one. But certainly uh, I was aware of IREM, but I knew they weren't one of the giants in the same way that Capcom and Konami filled my, my world with their arcade machines and Sega as well, of course, Taito. at that point. And Taito. Yeah, don't forget Taito, of course. Yeah. Um, but IREM were there, and then suddenly this game turned up in the arcades. Uh, it was actually licensed to Nintendo of America, at least in the USA. I don't know if it had the Nintendo badge on the coin-ops over here. Um, you were lucky to ever find an arcade machine that was an actual dedicated unit. Generally, we had those sort of um, licensed-out uh, leisure electro coin or whatever cabinets one of the big distributors over here. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they would put the bezel in in the top front of the cabinet. Sometimes they wouldn't depend if it fit, I think, sometimes, things like that. In Fran France, they had similar deals. Uh, I remember seeing caps with uh, Datel or Jotel on them. Yeah. Those kind of things, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but this came out, and this is really the reason that I decided to finally get around to doing R-Type in this volume, is because the first R-Type came out in July 1987. That is 30 years ago, folks. Uh, it came about when uh, IREM's parent company, Nanao, developed a new PCB hardware, something more uh, powerful than they'd been able to use before. And inspired by the likes of Gradius, uh, they were motivated to make their own uh, their own horizontally scrolling shoot em up And so they did. But I think it's fair to say that uh, they did a few things which have meant that the game has kind of gone down in legend. Uh, the name R-Type, not to be confused with the Bentley R-Type or the Honda Civic Type R or Ridge Racer Type 4. Uh, this comes from the book 1001 Video Games You Must Play Before You Die. And this is by uh, Duncan Harris, who used to write for Edge and PC Gamer and also set up the excellent Dead End Thrills, uh, which is dedicated to amazing uh, screenshots from video games using tools. Uh, his entry in this book says, R-Type is one of the most enduring shoot-em-ups for one simple reason. People don't just play it to shoot things. Never shy of a little trans-dimensional mischief. It makes time and space for the things most others leave out. Story, character and themes. Loved by game historians more than players, it's mercilessly hard and fundamentally flawed. Each level is a landscape work of art. To survive, the player must learn to fight fire with fire. The Bido, a biological weapon abandoned in space, has evolved into an empire bent on our destruction. With a simple order to strike off and defeat the threat, your job is to pilot two units, the R9 Arrowhead, a curvaceous space fighter, and the Force, a chunk of Bido flesh encased inside a loyal sphere. Detachable, indestructible, and matched to the player's up-down movements, this iconic specimen is the centre of the entire series. In fact, it's so important that later levels 
Arsenal's leap in difficulty if you die, leaving you to claw back your arsenal despite waves of enemies and obstacles. Some of the formations are deceptively intricate, others frighteningly so, while most favour a single route and plenty of trial and error. Whether the storm, though, and the rewards are everywhere. Form and function combine beautifully in our type, whether in the deadly hypnotic tale of the Dobkeratops or a third stage focused entirely on the dodging and dissection of a Bido battleship. Our type also features one of the video game genre's greatest soundtracks full of percussive effects and chiptune anthems, but its genius lies in its use of screen space and resources, the parallax scrolling backdrops, choreographed sprites, the bouncing neon lasers giving every pixel a chance to shine in a gaming version of the Louvre it'd be first upon the wall <laughs> wow so dan do you remember setting eyes upon an r-type in the arcades back in 87 or soon after or did you come to it through home ports or what's your history with the first r-type game um i'm sure i must have seen it in the arcades first because i know i played it in the arcades before i played it on anything else but my abiding memory is that um the demo tape that came with computer and video games where it had i think it was commodore 64 on one side and spectrum on the other mm. now i only got to use the spectrum side but Oh, it was the first port. time outside of the, oh, yeah, for for the machine it was. It was absolutely fantastic. And I just played that level, or I don't even know if it was the whole level or um, a chunk of level, over and over and over again. And uh, I bought it as soon as it came out. But I, I knew that, yeah, the arcade game I'd played, but I think it was just that little bit too brutal for me, for my 20Ps to, yeah. to have really focused on it very hard. And then I, I got the Master System version later down the line. Oh. And I think I've played, I think I've played most of them on the way through like one of my first uh, forays into emulation was the pc engine version just because i'd heard so many things about it over the years yeah and seen it in some of those uh, gray import shops on tottenham court road uh, where they'd had the, um, the little pc engine set up but they didn't have any joypads plugged in so all you could see was this sort of uh, like little rolling demo and um yeah it was one of those things i always wanted to play so yeah that's the pretty much the first reason i ever dipped my toe into emulation was to play that yeah understandably so yeah there was uh, there was a lot of hype around that that particular home version we'll talk a little about ports and, and versions later in the, the the pros and cons um for me I, I absolutely remember seeing this in the arcades i don't remember the very first time but i remember seeing that uh that very cool script on a title screen and the attract mode. And this was in the days in the mid eighties. So I was yeah, 15 years old. I had all the arcades at my mercy of Brighton. I was free to go down there. I had a little bit of spending money. It was a, it was a, it was a magical time. And I got very, very good at the first three levels of R-Type. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still very good at the first yeah. three levels of R-Type. Uh, and after that, it all starts it to falls go. falls apart, right? Yeah, totally. Um, but yes, I played it and played it and played it. I continue to play it. I've bought it on... I had the Amiga version, uh, which was a reasonable port. We'll talk about that. Uh, I had R-Types on the PS1, which is a very good port. And these days, I play it on the Xbox 360. And we'll talk about that version as well. Uh, it's pretty much arcade perfect, even though it was reverse engineered. Uh, but I'm still not very good at it. So we've bent if not broken the rules really uh, with this game especially r-type 2 because i've never legitimately completed r-type 2 um, but i have played through all the levels by hook and by crook various versions have had various ways of allowing you to do it whether it's chucking in virtual money or save states or an infinite lives mode there are ways to play through this game but um i've been watching uh, recently there's a guy who's doing a series on youtube called one one credit classics uh he's uh, a british guy i don't know how old who has taken it upon himself to one credit complete some vintage games and 
one of the uh, the first 20 or 30 he did was R-Type and over the course of a few months he dedicated himself and and he did it and he said at the end he felt like he could you know take mm. on the world uh, after he managed to do it so it certainly is possible but I'm not going to lie to you and say that I'm as good at R-Type as I am at some of the other games we've covered recently because I'm not and it's brutal and merciless but uh, but I still uh, have a lot of connection to it over the yeah, last Yeah, I look forward time. to going into that point uh, when we discuss the difficulty in the, in the overall game later on. So, Absolutely. What's your history with uh, it? Though, my history is uh, not very spectacular. Um, my, the first R-Type game I played was Super R-Type on the Super Nintendo. I've never come across mm. uh, uh, Arcade uh, Cabinet in the Wild uh, for the game and I wasn't familiar with any of the home computer port versions either or the, the home console versions. Before that, after the original game, um, and I really quite liked it. But this was in a time when me and my brother would uh, put our money together to buy a single game. And my brother wasn't as fond of uh, Super R Type as I was. So we, uh, since we lacked uh, a unanimous decision on the game, we brought it back to the toy store that we used to religiously buy our software from. Uh, the guy was usually friendly enough that we could just take a game over the weekend see if we like it and if we didn't like it we could just bring it back and uh, pick something else instead um, yeah. and then only years later I started playing the original game on the Playstation 1 uh, R-Types compilation which uh, contains both R-Type 1 and 2 which is the version I've been playing up until this podcast recording as well um, yeah got a lot to say about it uh, I have uh, I mean, ever since I really uh, got more familiar with the original game, I have been uh, itching to say a lot about it. So uh, let's get it on. Absolutely. So as was often the case back in these days, the staff were small and credited mainly by uh, pseudonyms. Uh, team leader Kinte, designer Abiko, programmer Sum and uh, Misa Chin. Uh, and... Let's talk about the art and the graphics. So Akio was one of the character designers and Yoshige was another. Uh, can probably assume that most of the art and graphics were done by those two people because such was the size of the team and also the, the sort of consistency in tone. I think it's fair to say there's an obvious... This was 1987. Aliens had come out the previous year. There's an obvious Giga uh, influence, especially in Dob Keratops, the iconic first boss and the sort of the general sense of biomechanoid menace Definitely. in space. And there's also the uh, the certain t enemy types that are, uh, sometimes pop up in the game which look like mechanized version of uh, Giga's aliens. Yeah. They do. Yeah, like a cross between an atomic yeah. robo-kid and an alien. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Absolutely. That's an apt description, yeah. 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 Uh, but I think it's fair to say uh, that... This sprite art, as it was, 2D pixel art, was some of the most alluring and captivating stuff I'd ever seen in 1987. Mm. Um, it had atmosphere, a sense of drama. Um, this was partly the music, which we'll talk about separately, but it was bold and colourful. It had a sort of style to it. I mean, I loved Gradius, as, as the team who made this did, but this had a really distinctive look. It didn't just look like a, another space yeah. shooter. From the design of the R9A itself to the enemy designs to the even the way the weapons look, the helix laser and, and the reflect laser and the force as well, of course, with its kind of glowing mm -hmm. heart. Uh, I still look at this game now. It Obviously, it doesn't look as 
relatively high resolution now as it did, as it did then, but uh, and and maybe it doesn't look quite as th- eye poppingly three D as it did then with its uh, with its shading and stuff. But I still think this game just looks so completely uh, superb and outstanding. The explosions, especially, are really unusual and yeah, striking. They, they have anima- um, actual animation going on in them, uh, the explosions. And I, I was before yeah, I got the, the, the yeah. uh, PS One uh, version of the game. Uh, I was deliberating getting the uh, the PC Engine version on uh, the Wii's Virtual Console. But looking at videos, I saw mm. like, hey, the explosions don't really animate, you know. Even though in still screenshots it looked very similar, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I really had to get the original thing. Yeah, it's just uh, it's got those few little extra touches, but yeah. Um... Yeah, I just thought it looked amazing then, still does. I'm obviously, as as with all R-Type talk throughout this podcast, I'm way more familiar with the half, first half of R-Type 1 and the first two levels of R-Type 2 than I am mm-hmm. of the rest of the game. But when I do play through the rest of the game, uh, I do see that there's some... Uh, once you get past the level 4, which I actually think is uh, not the most exciting-looking level, it's made up of these sort of trails of dots mainly, uh, it gets a bit more interesting again and, and you get more into the yeah. whole sort of biomechanical thing that the the same route that gradius would often go down as well as as you got further into the games uh but yeah just um i think in my head this this sort of quality of sprite art is the pre precursor to what snk ended up doing with things like metal slug and its shoot 'em ups as well with that just more and more detail and more and more intricacy and uh extra frames of animation that hadn't been the norm i think you hit the nail on the head right there uh also because Metal Slug wasn't made by SNK themselves, of course, but, uh, of course, but by a team called Nazca, Nazca which was uh, Nazca. which mm. was made up by uh, a bunch of uh, IRAM guys. Dan, you said you you've mainly played ports, and we will talk about the Spectrum version, uh, which was obviously a, a, an astonishing port in many ways. But have you, you have you played the the arcade version? Uh, yeah, I've been playing uh, R Type Dimensions on uh, on. Xbox One via back compatibility this past yes. few months, um, and again, yeah. like yourself, I've not been able to make my way through it properly. <laughs> like, there's no way I can do it nowadays. I just look at it and like, I don't get angry at games very often, and this is one of the few where I almost got to sort of throwing the pad levels of, yeah, of stuff. But again, that's partly why I love it as well. You know, so. yeah, yeah, I do, I do, do think it is. Uh, you mentioned the resolution. Mm. Wasn't uh, this game leaps and bounds ahead of uh, other, its contemporary arcade games in terms of actual screen resolution? I think it was a new generation of hardware, certainly. I think other things happened around the same time uh, that were, uh, you know, th- this was the direction in which we were moving. I mean, ironically, I suppose we still are we're, we're still adding pixels to things now we're heading for four four yeah. k pixels um or trying to in many cases um and back then it was about adding yeah extra a few hundred few hundred extra pixels vertically or horizontally and uh, yeah as i say i remember i do remember thinking it looked fantastic in in 1987 but it i don't think it struck me as being as much of a kind of watershed moment as the first time i saw space harrier or ridge racer or something like that it, mm. it looked like a an evolution of, of visuals in a lot of ways but i think i was as much struck by the the scale of it 
particularly the battleship level, which I don't know if anyone had attempted anything like that before. No, to my knowledge, was, it was the first. This was definitely a first. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the, the yeah, again, iconic level, which has obviously been aped many, many, many times. The R-Type games have an enormous legacy of both official sequels and spin-offs and influenced games influenced by. And the reason that we're doing just the first couple of games in the series in this podcast is because there's just too much too much to say and I want to save I want to save some of those for hopefully for future podcasts but uh that battleship level absolutely uh was insanely ambitious and the first it was so intimidating the first time you did it as well not not just the the challenge of it and knowing you know where to hide because th- these days I know that stuff off, I've done it so many times off by heart. I'm not saying I never die on that level, but uh, I still manage to come a cropper now and again. But the first few times you play it in the arcade and you'd never seen anything that big kind of moving around before. Uh, mm. And you just felt like you were constantly about to be crushed. It was uh, it, obviously it wouldn't have the same impact for somebody downloading R-Type Dimensions now as it did then. But back in 1987, it was, uh, yeah, it was eye-popping. It's possibly worth noting that in 86 we'd had sidearms, which did have massive um, battleships that you came up against. Obviously nowhere near the size of what we got yeah. in our type, but I wonder if that mm-hmm. was kind of a, an influence or a step along the way, because they do almost have a similar look and shape and and what have you. Yeah, could well have been. Uh, and another thing that struck me straight away, and this was uh, a game that was often uh, cranked up quite loud, it had this FM sound chip, which was very sharp and audible above the sounds of coin-ops around it. Uh, so we were kind of at an era here where we were transitioning from the relatively simple uh, beeps uh, of the earlier games, multi-channel uh, sounds, but without that much percussion into the era of samples. And so this era, you would get these sort of FM sounding sound chips. Uh, and one thing that strikes me now is that uh, there's there's there is actually a lack of percussion on this track and uh musician Masahito Ishizaki says this is kind of pathetic but the reason Artite's music doesn't have drums or percussion is because I didn't know how to make those sounds with an FM chip uh but yet again I think right from that opening flourish when you first launch a ship apparently that sequence was added right at the end of development the the ship blasting off uh uh, the the sound was again equally captivating from the soundtrack, which was driving, but sounded again sort of sounded unlike anything else. It was quite, it was quite. Um, I found it quite serious, quite intense. Whereas a lot of games tended to be very poppy and jolly, uh, horizontally scrolling shoot 'em ups, uh, especially not always, but sometimes they had a sort of space opera drama about them. But again, this had a sort of slightly more off kilter, slightly eerie atmosphere about it. He does occasionally um, slip into sort of like funky, jazzy keys, just for a little section here and there, though, yeah. in the later levels. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, uh, and we we were noticing in in super r type the that's the sort of the start of a of a more jazzy direction that r type leo takes up as well but um but for the most part again i'm talking probably more about those first three or four levels because they're the ones i know but um i know most intimately but uh yeah and and not only the the music but also the the sound effects just felt so 
in, uh, I, I still think this game sounds incredible. I was waxing about Robotron recently, but this is another game where if I shut my eyes and I'm trying to go to sleep, I might hear the sounds of explosions from R-Type or the sound of the turrets blowing up and uh, a very particular set of sounds that sound very specifically designed to match the action that's on the screen. I hear the uh, charging up of the charge beam all the time. Of course, yes. And there's a squishiness to some of the explosions of um, of the sort of more biomechanical images. It's got the sort of a sort of squelchy sort of bassiness yeah. to it. Yeah, the the whole the whole suite of sound effects feels very um, yeah very designed. Which um, which uh, Ishizaki, this comes from an interview that uh, Mikio kindly sourced for us from is it Schmapulations website. That's the one. A yeah. good resource for these sorts of things. So uh, Ishizaki was actually credited as Scrap on the game, which is um, a slight mistranslation uh, of Sclap, uh, with the whole NLR transposition from Japanese to English. Um, but actually, the name is the S is from the last letter of Blues, and the Clap is from Eric Clapton. Uh, so there you have it. Uh, and he says. Scrap says, not Eric Clapton. Uh, for the sound, I got many requests from the planning staff. The main thing was for it to be serious in tone. After I had finished all the songs for our type, other people at Iron told me, we want you to make the songs more singable with melodies that are catchy and easier to remember. But I had made everything according to the imagery of the game, so I didn't change it. The planning and design staff would give ideas for the rhythm of certain sounds. It should be like Don, ta-ta-ta, and so on. Their ideas were really vague, but I did my best to match them. It was really difficult. I was told that won't work at all, many times. For every successful sound, I had double the number of failures. When I make sound effects, my reference point is always the animation frames of the graphics. Take an explosion in a shooting game, for example. Consider the animation used when a player shoots an enemy. First, the enemy starts to break up. Second, there's an explosion. Third, the explosion dissipates. The first thing I'd do is watch those animation frames over and over, imagining sounds in my head that would match, blam, blam, etc. Next, I would calculate the timing of each animation frame and finally match a sound to each frame. I taught this method to the new employees at IRM2. The reason I keyed the sound effects to the animation frames was that I thought it made the player feel like they were at one with the controls. The R-Type explosions have a unique sound, don't they? That's because the explosion animation was unique, you see. It's the same with the reflect laser and anti-aircraft laser. We call it the candy laser. I think you just have to. Uh, I think if you just use sampled sounds, it wouldn't sound so tightly matched. Even if I were to make another game today, I think I'd use the same method. So I read that for the first time today in putting the show together and... All I can say is it made perfect sense. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's such a deeply thoughtful approach to uh, video game sound design, uh, especially looking at the era, you know, of uh, 1987 arcade games. And he captures, he uh, managed to capture in, in approaching his sound design that way, just the core essence of what makes uh, a shoot 'em up satisfying to play. It's that that moment where your projectile, where your bullet, or where your laser hits an enemy ship and it destroys. And yeah, with 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 uh, keying the uh, sound effects to the animation, that's just extra satisfying. And K H, the sound programmer. 
uh, says, the main difficulty I had with R-Type Sound was that for these new FM compositions, we didn't have any development tools like a sound editor, so the sounds that were discussed during planning turned out to be very different from what were actually made. It was really problematic for scrap. Uh, so, yes, challenges often coming out with the with the best results, as we know from the many development tales we've read and explored over the, uh, the years on Cane and Rinse. Uh, but yeah, I think it's uh, still a wonderful sounding game. There probably aren't that many hundreds of sound effects compared to uh, more modern titles, but everything that's in there sounds just uh, just perfect to me. I always find it interesting. I think this is true in Gradius as well, and I think it's partly uh, technological limitations, but partly I think it seems to be deliberate. The way that the the sort of your, your most basic enemies, the first things that fly on that only take one hit of your pea shooter to kill. They, they never really make an explosion sound in these classic vintage Japanese shoot 'em ups They always make a little melodic kind of tinkle, a jingle almost, but it still seems to really work somehow. Right. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, whether it's just meant to sound friendly or uh, Moorish, whether it's it's the sort of dopamine hit. I'm, I'm not quite sure. I think, at least for, speaking for Gradius, and I'm kind of thinking back to our type where it's the same, it seems like the opening notes or the intro to the uh, to the uh, soundtrack playing sort of muffles the explosion sounds, mm. and then when one once uh, one the once the uh, music properly kicks in, that's where everything starts making noise, and you start hearing all, all the explosions. Yeah, that's how that's how it works in Gradius, and yeah, I think that's the same case as in our type. Yeah, yeah, channel limitations and all that. I yeah. wonder how many people who said at the time the melodies weren't catchy enough still now get that first level tune in their heads and think, damn, maybe it was catchy enough. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, endless loop, especially as uh, each piece is, is relatively short, so the, the hooks come around and around over and over again because the levels are really short. I mean, if, if you really notice playing on... Um, uh, playing on R-Type Dimensions, Cheaty Cheaty, Infinity Mode, uh, that you can really race through these levels in, in virtually no time at all. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not challenging. So I'm going to use the word iconic again. The R9A Arrowhead, your fighter in this game. It didn't look quite like anything that I'd seen before in a game. Uh, I, spe I expect it had some uh, sort of precedence in science fiction maybe maybe anime maybe other cartoons but it still looks like the r-type ship to me with its kind of hooded glass top and front um it looks just so cool to me i i, I think when yeah. i first saw it i was thinking ah oh, it's not as streamlined as the the vic viper not that i knew what the vic viper was called back then uh and i and i thought oh, it's a bit of an interesting idea but i soon very very soon learned to to love the r9a and uh it's amazing obviously as the series goes on the ship develops and by the time our type final happened I, there, there's like 300 variants in that game or something insane <laughs> uh all, yeah. all all variations on a theme but i still love the look of this ship yeah, it's it's exactly as you said. The the Vic Viper is this very sharp uh, spear point tip of a ship that uh, just looks vicious and ready to tear into enemies. Where the ST R nine is much bulkier. You mentioned the the canopy uh, at the front and also the the, the backside and the the engine uh, parts just just look really rounded and bulky. It's um, 
it doesn't look like like exactly as you said like anything that came before it and there's not much that came after it that uh that dares to ape its design either. only all the only all the the sequels as it were um yeah i think maybe it's partially influenced by underwater craft it has that sort of bathysphere um kind of idea to it i think which sort of fits in with the the biomechanical aesthetic of the game and certainly in level two of our type two you actually you go underwater uh, yeah. and it seems to make perfect sense yeah just very quickly i think that in our type final also there's a, a cg animation probably in one of the cutscenes that i seem to remember where uh an r9 model morphs into one of those uh mechanized atomic robo kit alien things <laughs> which really blew my mind when i saw it that heft also carries across into the the feel of it as well uh, it doesn't feel quite as nippy as at the Vic Viper in Gradius, uh, and again, maybe that's another under underwatery feel that you've just sort of put in my head. But yeah, there is a slight more hate, a, a weight to it. I know physics again isn't the right word for for these games that they're talking about, well, but yeah, um, but there would have been some thought towards the, the feel of the craft, obviously. So yeah, I've always found that a, a sort of counterpoint yeah. to the Gradius. And interesting, the you collect uh, speed ups, but it never indicates what the maximum is. As it turns out, it's five according to that interview. Uh, but certainly, I always found anything beyond three was way too twitchy for the nature yeah. of the game, uh, because you you end up in such incredibly confined areas, and also for a lot of the bosses, right from boss number two, which is called remind me, Mikhail. The cyst. The cyst. That's right. Yeah. Um, right from a, that a one. A nasty thing. You learn that it's 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 as much about finding the safe spot as it is uh, a dodging. This is this is a way in which our type is is kind of in some ways nothing like a bullet hell game because it's often about just positioning yourself in the correct place as much as it is about dodging and weaving. Although there's a certain amount of that to be done as well, especially if you lose your 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 rhythm. Um, so yeah. the origin of the title, uh, our very own Darren Gargett asked me this the other day. He'd never, he'd never found out. And I told him what I believed it was. And I have read in more than one place elsewhere, which is that it refers to the round canopy of the ship. But from the horse's mouth in this interview... The R stands for ray, as in ray of light. It comes from there being many different types of ray weapon in the game. So that's from the horse's mouth. But the other, the other definition is is uh, is prevalent. Uh, and the ship's hitbox is one single pixel in the dead center of the ship. And to compensate, the developers made enemy and background hitboxes larger than they visually appear, so things wouldn't seem unnatural. Uh, <laughs> and you can indeed. Uh, just about overlap things with your with your uh, fighter, uh, and again that actually comes into play in in, in a lot of places. The the Gradius ship um, had a, a hitbox that could be quite irritating. I I found as much as I love that game, that series of games, uh, in that it seemed to very quickly go from you could like you could basically overlap your wingtips by one pixel and anything more was just instant instant death whereas here there's a little bit more room for maneuver and i think it's important because the ship is quite relatively bulky on screen as we say mm -hmm. and i think this was yeah this was the start of something or not the start but a, a progression 
along the road to something that we know all the time now from modern uh, Dan Maku shooters and, and so on, which is the, the one pixel hitbox that you have to protect at all costs. Only in this case, it's not you, you, you can't see visibly. It's not like lit up or anything. So you, you have to kind of manually remember where the pixel, the magic pixel is, as it were. So probably the thing that R-Type is most famous for, other than all the other things it's most famous for, are its weapon systems. Um, the charge beam, again, uh, certainly games going all the way back uh, to the earliest kind of scrolling shooters had secondary weapons. But I think, again, this is the first one that had a an actual charge beam as such, where you would uh, relinquish firing your pea shooter in order to charge up the 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 beam the beam beam weapon and the longer you hold it down the bigger the beam you get in several stages uh, there's an achievement on r-type dimensions versions for completing the first level i think it is with only full beam weapons so that's a thing that it's possible to do to never use your pea shooter uh, or anything else for that matter uh, i remember when i first read in i think it was computer and video games it might have been uh Julian Rignall or Tony Takashi on someone who's writing for that who said you're not playing R-Type properly if you're not just using the beam if you're <laughs> using small shots you are not playing the game properly which is obviously an exaggeration but it completely changed how I played the game on on the home ports and in the arcades from there I was like ah and it all kind of clicked into place a little yeah you certainly want to use it a lot uh but I I mean maybe this is part of my problem but I probably still use the pea shooter too much. Mikhail, you've been playing this hard uh, the last few days, probably even more so than I have. Uh, what's your what's your balance of um, weapons usage? Would you say? I'm uh, I'm charging a lot. Yeah. 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 I notice on. So I I I charge I charge my beam up quite a bit, and then I line up my shots to take out uh, multiple enemies at once, and I send my uh, four spot, which we will get in, uh, into later. I send send it out to uh, do a lot of killing around the screen, and it's really, really, really fun to manage uh, spacing and uh, uh, destruction on the screen like that. Yeah. So the temptation is to hit. Yes, your force, the force. Um, it's it is uh, as was mentioned earlier. It is a kind of drone bot thing. It protects you. It uh, most bullets will just bounce off it you can attach it to front or rear it mirrors your vertical movement you can fire it off in front of you into tight spaces uh, and yeah it adds a whole load to the game uh, and it was obviously one of the main things that the series keeps as it goes on and uh, uses in different ways adds different uh, sort of abilities to it depending on which weapon tokens you pick up um, but again it's another thing that is absolutely archetypally R-type. And without the force, it would be more like a, uh, you know, another horizontally scrolling shoot-em-up. Um, mm. I still feel like, and and again, this is probably my problem, which is why I've never, never one credited the games, is that I'm probably using my beam weapon wrong. I'm probably using the force wrong. I've watched playthroughs. I've watched uh, that chap doing it in one credit. And it's actually one of the things that is not my favorite thing about the r-type games which is that they apart from enemy bullets 
uh, can be fired in uh, different sort of um, formation sequences depending on what's going on. Uh, there's not that much kind of random or, or difference going on. And if you're playing well, you can make the game kind of replicate over and over again. So it becomes yeah. very much about knowing exactly where to be and what to fire and what to be doing and what to pick up. And that's actually not necessarily my favourite kind of shoot 'em up gameplay. I prefer things to be a bit more... Uh, sort of varied on the fly. The uh, quote you read in the be beginning from Duncan Harris, if I'm not re remembering this uh, incorrectly, mentioned uh, that it's uh, already alluded to uh, the much-heard um, assessment of R-Type that it's a memorizer. Mm. And I think that kind of has has a very negative uh, connotation. Okay. Like it's a puzzle you can finish only in one way, right? Like there's one way to finish it. Yeah. And uh, that's how to uh, how you get through it. And part of what makes people believe that, I think, is exactly what you just mentioned. Like the game is not, there's no randomization in it. Mm. It plays out exactly the same way at all times. Um, but that's providing that you, as the player, do exactly the same thing at all times, mm. of course. Because if you fly in a different spot on the screen, enemies will aim their bullets in a different way. And they might turn their uh, flying arc around to yeah. try and ram you and everything. Um, so that does make it a puzzle to be solved in a way. In a way, yes. And there is definitely truth uh, to uh, the idea that if you play, if you figure out one way... To play the game, you can pretty much uh, do it exactly the same way and get exactly the same result in the end. But I really want to contest the idea that uh, there is just one way to play the game. Mm -hmm. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. And we really have to look at the, how beautiful the system of the, the force and its management is. You can attach it to the front, you can attach it to the rear, you can let it fly independently and fight for you. Uh, you can reel it in and smash enemies between you and the forest that, uh, that way. So there's a lot of things you actually can do. Hmm. And there, the game uh, is not designed in such a way that there is just one answer to every situation. You're, you're, there are multiple safe spots in many situations. There are multiple uh, ways to deal with, uh, with things. Um, you know, in a way... Most action games and arcade games have a memorization element to it. If you know yes. what's coming, if you know what's going to happen, you know that's going to help you with a, a subsequent playthrough. Uh, that's going to make you inevitably do do better. Uh, Art that might just be a little bit more um, more extreme than that. Hmm. But there's a reason why R-Type has a very slow scrolling speed, much slower than uh, Gradius, for example, mm. or many other uh, side-scrolling shooters. It's because it gives you a bit of breathing room to assess a situation and deal with it, even when it's your first time uh, playing it. So if you stay generally in the middle of the screen, uh, once you're in an unfamiliar situation, um, yeah, this, this, the, the scrolling speed is slow enough to wear... It's hard, but it gives you the opportunity to try and uh, think on the fly and, and act on the fly. And I think that's those moments are uh, the moments where the game really shines and where it's, where it's the most fun. Mm. Dan, what are your thoughts on this, the prescriptive nature or not of the gameplay? Um, well, I think it's plain to see that there is, um, yeah, an element of it being this sort of like by rote 
kind of system. But you've um, you just reminded me with the the idea of sending off the force. Uh, there's this little challenge that my friend and I used to do with the um, master system version, yeah. where we'd try and get through the first level uh, only using the guns to uh, get the power ups to make the force bigger but not using any bullets on enemies just to see if you could use just the force by sort of sending it off yeah. to yeah. get all the way to the end. And yeah, we used to manage to do the first level. So if you can, if you can do that, then I guess there's a little more freedom than, than maybe we sometimes give it credit for. Yeah. What I've found is, and again, differences in play styles with that first boss, a lot of the videos that I've seen on YouTube where people don't send the force Hmm. into the little green alien belly thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, why didn't you do that? Yeah, um, that's what again, you want to do, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. That's but such a great feeling. Just... Doing it. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so maybe there's a little freedom within the uh, fairly strict parameters. Yeah, so they're kind of puzzles with multiple potential solutions, but also like video game puzzlers, you do also need to execute. It's not just about sliding tiles you know like there's a there's an element of just getting things slightly wrong and everything can go pear-shaped yeah. it's interesting also that as well as that achievement trophy that i mentioned in dimensions about only using the force full full beam not force sorry the full beam shot there's also an achievement for using just the pea shooter for a couple of levels without dying so that does rather make a mockery of the idea that there's only one way to play. Uh, you know, that's obviously it's a challenging achievement, but it is one that people have got. And uh, certainly, yeah, people, there are plenty of videos of people doing this without, uh, you know, without losing a life, certainly without using a continue. And you'll find that although there are a lot of similarities between the playthroughs, they're not necessarily identical. So. Yeah, it's the same with the with the power ups that you're given by the 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 pots uh, pots that come along, right? You have the the what uh, scrap called the uh, anti aircraft laser, which is the the, the big circle circular uh, laser with of blue and the helix thing yeah. of blue blue and uh, and red that mm. uh, fires in front candy of you. Laser. Yeah, the candy laser. <laughs> Uh, there's the uh, ricocheting uh, laser that bounces off everything. Amazing. Um, still so cool. That still yeah, feels great, even after 30 years, to me. It's both, fantastic. Both of those weapons actually just feel great to fire. Like, just yeah. unstoppable. My, my, it made my kids, uh, my young kids, sit up and take notice. Like, wow, that's really a cool laser. Really? <laughs> even now? Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah, even now. Mm. Yeah. And um, there is the... Um, let's say the, f the vertical flames that uh, shoot up from up, up above you and under you and uh, travel along surfaces. Um, so usually what happens is you get a power up and you, and you, it's pretty advisable to take it because you're usually, usually given uh, the correct power up for the correct situation. I find that in the game. Um, yeah. But that's also still not, uh, just as uh, set in stone as it appears to be, because if you ignore it, you use a, a different weapon. Yeah. You you change a lot of uh, the dynamics in uh, a supposed uh, rigid playthrough as well. Yeah. And let's also not forget that if you die and you lose your force pot, all of a sudden you're playing a very different game. Yeah. Here. Yeah. Um, there's always the uh, the cliche, and uh, Gradius is very known for that as well. Like when once you die, you lose all your power ups. 
you know it's it's it can be really hard uh, for some people even impossible to to recover yeah like a lot of people said just restart the game yeah um so what i found uh when i was playing it for the podcast recently uh and i won credited up until stage five right that's mm. where that's the the uh, another very organic looking stage with uh, with a lot of uh, snakes yes. and, uh, and biological creatures um i w- i was playing through the game pretty much unscathed up uh, up until that, sp- that point yeah and i was used to using my four spot attached to the front of my ship to just ram into a lot of enemies and just like Take take out a lot of popcorn enemies by just hovering over them, almost like a cursor, you know, like, yeah. uh, just destroying them that way. Now all of a sudden, I didn't have a four spot anymore because it was the mid level checkpoint, and yeah. the first two power up carrying uh, pods you you come across only have uh, speed up uh, icons in them. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was. Completely different because I was so much used to ramming into uh, ships that I it, I lost a, a couple of lives just just being used to that idea, just ramming into ships from the front while I wasn't even yeah. I, I didn't even have a four spot anymore, and it was a very tough climb uh, to to get out of that hole, um, but I did it and it makes makes you realize like yeah this this game is not set in stone you know there. Are many different ways uh, to deal with with things, even from unfavorable uh, uh, conditions. Yeah, it's not completely like it's not a cheater. It's not actually impossible. However, it is. I think it is fair to acknowledge that this was a coin op, and it was designed to it was designed to look so cool that you wanted to keep putting money in, even though you were dying over and over again. Which uh, and there there came a point, and this is. This is why I'm so much more familiar with the first half of the game than the second is because I used to get through the first half of the game at the arcades and then run out of lives. And rather than continue to throw in what was not an endless supply of 10 P's, I would think, right, OK, I've killed I've killed three really cool bosses. Uh, that's enough now. I, I'm not I'm not I'm not which is. Yeah, which is why even to this day, even though I've had home versions for the best part of 20 years now, I'm still so much better poorer at the second half of the game just because mm. i'm just so overly practiced at the first half and i still get intimidated as as well like i still keep the same anxiety uh, that, yeah. I, that i had all the way you know as a 15 year old with a limited supply of of 10 p's well it's very fair to say that after stage uh, well stage five is already quite of a quite a difficulty spike but after that the game becomes really 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 difficult yeah Stage six is where these uh, chunks of metal fly through paths through the stage, which are very hard to destroy, if at all. Yeah. And uh, this this is where you are going to lose a lot of lives, and it takes a long while to figure out the patterns of these uh, these things, especially yeah, if you're playing on an actual arcade cabinet, if yeah. you were playing it back in the days, and you have to throw in coins. Uh, it, it would take you a lot of coins to figure that section out. Yeah, and it, that really is puzzly, that stuff, where the levels are actually kind of interlocking um, yeah, yeah mecha- mechanical entities that you need to be in just the right place. Like the, the battleship, when you first come across it on level three, seems like this really complex, intimidating thing, but you soon learn that there's actually only a couple of points where you need to hide as it looms above you. 
But yeah. on those later levels, there are multiple, multiple sections where you need to be in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. And if you haven't cleared everything out before, you need to be in that safe space, then you yeah, you're dead. And once you're dead, you're probably going to be dead a few more times before you recover. So yeah, it's it's tough and it's definitely not for everybody. Um this kind of gameplay, this uh, learning learning by dying gameplay. Uh, somebody said yeah. so I think it's in one of our correspondence we'll hear later. There's it's almost a roguelike in, in some set like a roguelike horizontally scrolling shoot 'em up in that you take all your equipment as far as you can but when you die you drop it all you know, and that's <laughs> almost go back you might as well go back to the start in some some situations uh yeah it's it's very very harsh i think those later levels you've got um they've got you used to the idea of there being a safe spot on the screen usually and then i suppose the logical extension that of that for gameplay design is to then move the safe spot around by using all of these objects around you to sort of shift your um your, your what's the word um sense of security and yeah make you suddenly feel on edge and move around how you're even thinking about the levels yeah. Talking about the, the Force, uh, Abaco, the designer, says it started out as a joke, but our idea for the Force came from the Dung Beetle. We were thinking of a system where you wouldn't power up your own ship, but you would instead power up the ball of dung. We wanted something where two players could play simultaneously within the same screen and fight together, basically. Our programmer, Akio, is a hardcore Gradius player, so we were very conscious of the existence of Gradius. If we were going to make a horizontal shoot 'em up we knew it would get compared to Gradius, so we were thinking about what we could do differently. By the time we were asked to start coding, there had been many revisions and changes to the original game design. For example, we originally wanted to make the Force capable of deployment in four positions on your ship, front, back, top and bottom. But it turned out to be too difficult to program, so we left it only front and back. The power-ups changed almost completely too. At first we had typical weapons like a three-way shot, but we felt that this wouldn't distinguish our game enough from Gradius, so we added the reflecting laser. That was a real pain to code. Basically, the first idea we had was the Force. After that, we thought of weapon power-ups that would match the different enemies we were creating. So it's interesting that they were going to have the Force attached on four sides. In the end, there are these uh, shield items called, I think they're just called bits, uh, yeah. which are top and bottom. But the chances of you actually getting both at the same time because they're, they're like the first one is two levels away from the second one so only, <laughs> only if you already know what you're doing uh can you get from level one into and all the way to level maybe it's even level four before you get a second one actually so yeah that's sort of interesting in itself how 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 split up they are uh but i still love the way on on a visual and on a, a sort of level of enjoyment and excitement i still love the way that the first version of the force you get is a glowing orb with a couple of bits of metal attached to it and as you collect more power-ups it it gains it, it grows in size and then has these kind of big metal prongs coming out the back of it it's such a cool thing yeah. and it makes you feel so powerful despite the difficulty of the game you know it's it's this this whole idea of the force grants you a lot more power than anything you you had in gradius um so yeah it's because you have this huge shield in front of you. You know, in in Gradius you can get a shield uh, um, power up, but it's pretty weak. It's, yeah, it's pretty weak, and it uh, protects you from the front only, like the Force, but it also dissipates uh, after five hits. And this thing is pretty much indestructible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In in the second game, they start adding some enemy projectiles, which go right through it. 
which uh, I don't necessarily approve of because. Uh, yeah, that's in the f- in the first game already. That's uh, those are those lasers, for true. example. The red lasers, yeah, that's true. The red lasers go yeah. through it, but th- yeah, so it's one of those things that okay, so this one actually goes through yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of those learning experiences. Learning, learning by dying, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Coda uh, Sum says uh, one thing that was difficult from a programming perspective was making the force avoid walls and obstacles on its own depending on the terrain it sometimes gets stuck and just sits there since it's supposed to act almost like another player programming its movement was difficult Uh, and yes it does get stuck and one of the things about learning the game is to know where to not fire it off into because you know it will get wedged and uh, you try to recall it um yeah, it can even get dragged off the screen at points, uh, completely stuck behind stuff. It's interesting also reading that, that they were attempting to make it a simultaneous two-player game. This was actually, uh, functionality was latterly added in the R-Type Dimensions game. So that was 2009. Um, as far as I know, it's not rebalanced. So they've basically shoehorned it in there, you know, to allow people to play it local or, or online. But, um, yeah, how, how well it works, I don't know. I haven't had the opportunity to play it, but it's a, but it's a strange one to just, to just bolt that on there when the game was, in the end, designed very much around a single player. I can't remember which of the R-Type sequels, if any, has simultaneous multiplayer, but I certainly, can, I certainly think of them all as being resolutely single-player games, whereas Gradius certainly started going down the multiplayer route. Gradius uh, only has multiplayer in Gradius Five, actually. Yeah. Uh, the, the Salamander, Salamander. and Life Force series yeah. have uh, yeah. have two players. And uh, as far as uh, Artep is concerned, uh, Artep Leo, Leo has a, yeah. which is yeah the odd one out anyway. It has a two-player uh, simultaneous yeah function. I'm just imagining the slowdown on Super Artype if that had been two-player. Oh. <laughs> You know, you know, they would have, uh, as with Final Fight, they would have ripped, they would have ripped the two player out of there. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, Abiko says, when we made the stages, we created them one by one and then put them in order later according to their difficulty. The first one we created was the first stage, as a little bit of the Gradius image. Next, we made the crumbling ruined stage seven. Then we made stage two, the alien stage. The one we thought uh, we thought of that one after we saw aliens. <laughs> then came stages three and four. Uh, Akio designer says the first drawing that he completed for the entire project was the stage one boss, famously Dob Keratops. So that sort of set the the tone and the and mood for the whole game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Abiko's response to it was, "There's no way we can use something this huge," uh, but they did. It's a curious thing about some of the R-type bosses, though R-type and R-type two. Even though these games we've just we've already talked about how punishing they can be, the bosses are actually really really quick to kill for the most part if you know what to do. If you've got if you've brought everything with you and you know where to be. Like uh, you were talking about not necessarily accepting the power-ups in the order they're given to you. On level two, it very much wants you to have the reflect laser at the end of the stage. But actually, I've I've recently started taking to keeping the candy laser with me. And it's slightly more risky, but as long as you've got the bit firing at the snake, uh, you kill the cyst much much quicker than you do if you've got the reflect laser so right yeah so yeah. And, and it means you start the next level with with the candy instead of the 
reflect reflect lazy so right. yeah. yeah so that yeah exactly plays into what you were talking about there mm. there is not it's not just a case of there's only one strategy you can make it your own to an extent yeah and that the battleship is wants to give you the reflect laser as well uh but i recently found out and because it you to use it properly against this uh engine thing mm. of the ship that you need to kill uh it you need to put yourself in a lot of risk to let your ra- lasers reach it yeah uh but i found out that with the the top and bottom fire weapon mm. uh you can pretty much kill it risk free if you stay uh a little bit uh, up up ahead and attach the force to your back and yeah, nothing nothing can kill you at that point and you're uh your uh, fire will just uh, make its way to the to the engine. Yeah, sure. And uh, it's also worth noting that I mean, I still love talking about giant warship. The uh, we've got a picture of a model of it here. I don't know if it's from the developers or, or whether it's just fan made, but it's it's a gorgeous thing. Uh, the the fact that you can shoot the casing off the outside of that ship is still awesome. And yeah. uh, and one thing is, if you start with the helix rather than the the reflect, you can actually just uh, tuck in neatly, because its its hit area is much wider than your ship, so you can just kind of hit things that are considerably above and below you. Um, Especially the first circular shape that comes out. So when yeah. you move up close to things, you can and stay right under them. You can kill them that way. Yeah. Mm. But yes, there are moments even on level two in our type that uh, can. Uh, it, it used to intimidate me that level doesn't really scare me anymore because i can pretty much do it without ever losing a life but uh i remember those big you know beetle like things or whatever they are coming out of the uh the biomechanical mass of that is the background they, they're kind of they're sort of semi camouflaged uh because there yeah. are bits of the backdrop which just look just like them and you identify them by shooting them and they and they start to wiggle and as as they take damage um those are actually not that hard to hit as long as you're powered up or you use your beam. Um, but it, but it used to just, yeah, it used to just scare me that section. I still love those giant tanks of kind of entrails that are in there. Just such yeah. a cool looking. <laughs> yeah. And, and that all this sort of like what looks like uh, biological waste and yeah. teeth, teeth and nails and veins. Uh, it looks positively nauseating uh, when you when you look closely at what's going on there actually. It was absolutely the 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 most prevalent style of uh, of shoot 'em up level at this point in in history. Uh, yeah. for sure. And and going sl- uh, quickly back to the first stage, how iconic are those big pincers that are in the, inside oh, the base? Yeah, uh, yeah, completely. And the and the and the circle of turrets that you fly into where you can shoot that one the one blue weak point and the and the chain reaction kicks off around yeah. again still to me maybe it's because i've got 30 years worth of association with it but i still love that when you when you shoot that that one weak spot and, and the explosion yeah. chains around outside you they did a similar thing treasure did a similar thing in gradius 5 um one of the earliest bosses uh, and it still looks cool to me there yeah it's one of those uh, one and done moments as well isn't it where yeah, yeah. Never again. you kind of half expect that to be a, yeah to be like a, a part of the game and then it's just like nope that's it and that's a running thing through uh through our type if you could again compare it to gradius gradius has a lot of recurring things and 
you know, your classic video game design uh, of, of introducing one concept and then fleshing it out and making it more challenging along the stage. Mm. But uh, R-Type is way more set-piece uh, driven than, uh, than Gradius is. There are a lot of one-and-done ideas in there and enemies that show up only in one particular section of the stage. Uh, R-Type 2 does the, does the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Akio says, the jets on the battleship in stage three were originally red, not blue. Uh, the base on the wall front is stage four. Uh, Abico says for stage four, we were doing some programming simulation and I saw a character trailing a line behind him. And I thought if we can program something like this, we could try to use it as a game element. So we made stage four without a big variety of enemies, but mainly included enemies that created destructible lines in their wake and then added enemies that erased those lines and enemies that moved along them. Uh, yeah, I don't like this level. I think it's just because it, it's the one that kills me the most, but I also just find it the least interesting to look at. Uh, I've got better at it in recent weeks, but I still find it quite frustrating and I still get taken by surprise. And then the boss, I think, is the hardest boss up to this point as well. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I think once you get past this level, I think it, although it gets harder in some ways, it, it actually I prefer it after this particular level. Yeah, interestingly, it's the level that has the most opportunity for random elements because of those dots, and you're almost creating your own path through. That's very true. Yeah, maybe that's why. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted more well, flexibility. What used to get me was the uh, just the, the dot trailing ships, like the, yeah. the, the the patterns they would fly, uh, fly in, like they would come from the back and from the top and yeah. uh, and the bottom, and they would just all of a sudden turn. And this is, of course, something. You can learn because this is not a random. It's not a random pattern. No. You can learn how to to get through it. And yeah, that boss that uh, splits into three pieces also has three patterns. Uh, yeah. The the team says there are three patterns and they're chosen randomly. Actually, it isn't completely random. Maybe if you investigate a bit, you'll discover it. So it sounds like maybe you can lure it into moving in different ways or split it depending on where you are on the screen or what weapons you've got. But uh, it's tricky because the weak spots are quite, uh, on on at least two of the pieces are very well hidden. Uh, yeah. I still find myself wanting 30 years later, if I attach the force to the back, I still find myself wanting to be able to shoot backwards. <laughs> that would yeah. that would be so um, nice. It's a... The, the the helix laser actually actually fires backwards when you have the uh, pot attached to your back. Yeah. Uh, yes, if you've got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the beam doesn't. So yeah. Uh, the den we talked about. This is the one with the the snakes. Uh, the snakes in stage five were blue at first blue pink pastel style but later we made them much more austere in general everything got more and more austere it became very different from our original impression. Uh, and as for the stage five boss, they say it is completely random. A point near the top of the screen is chosen. And if you approach the, that, it moves slowly. And if you're far from it, it moves quickly. Then it repeats. Uh, this boss is incredibly difficult to kill without uh, much in a way of power. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is, yeah, this is the point in the game where really realistically without help, without cheats, without whatever even yeah even um i think is it the ps1 version lets you have a way more lives than the default dip switch setting i remember playing it with a lot of lives by default uh you could yeah yeah i think so i, I didn't do that but uh, right. yeah you could because uh, uh, dimensions doesn't have that it doesn't have any difficulty settings as such it's only got the the infinity mode where you keep coming back on the screen in a salamander style which obviously changes things yeah 
Yeah, so I find those those grayish blobs attached to the uh, to the me- mechanized core of the thing mm. pretty uh, repulsive and upsetting to look at. Actually, yeah. the way they attach themselves to the thing and then fly off and come come at you, uh, it's pretty pretty horrifying. It's as sh- far as two uh, D sprite based games go. Yeah, there's there's a lot of good stuff like that in these these latter levels, and I wish I was more familiar with them than I, than I am. I've played you know through them a handful of times compared to the hundreds of times I've played through the earlier levels uh, and yeah. it feels like I've maybe missed out on some well not missed out because I have seen it uh, and I've watched other playthroughs but uh, I don't have it in my heart and soul in the same way that I have those early levels just because it's still a bit it's uh, it's like a strange town when I get there maybe yeah. you were subconsciously Sorry, sorry. Ahead, so I just wondering if Leon was trying to subconsciously make the uh, PC Engine original version with just the four levels that little bit more arcade perfect by <laughs> making your arcade experience yeah. match that. I never actually played yeah. that version, but yeah, that would have been that would have been great. I could have completed that and then just said, "Yeah, I've completed this." <laughs> cart, yeah. cart one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is we've come now to a point uh, in the game where there is actually a completely random mm. bit in it. Mm. Um, and I've tangled with this boss quite a lot, um, and yeah, it's, it's you can have really bad luck to where it quickly moves in your direction and just smashes into you. And it's it's because it's so massive with all the gray, gray blobs attached to it, it's very hard to get out of the way and uh, and prevent that from happening. But sometimes it just sits back at the back of the stage and it's not interest doesn't seem very interested at all in uh, in uh, pursuing you so the only way i could actually find to defeat this boss with in a safe way because most of the bosses in uh, r-type have a safe way of uh, of defeating them it was to be fully powered up with the helix laser and just shoot every kept keep shoot uh, moving up and down and keep shooting at all the blobs that threaten to disattach itself from the main body and uh, and shoot them before they can uh, can reach you because as soon as they fly off and you can't kill them on their way towards you and they get behind you they start they turn around and start uh, attempt to smash you from the back it's uh, it's a nightmare to deal with um, anything further to report on these levels that I'm far less familiar with any uh, any important points that uh, that uh, regarding the last three levels that uh, that we should mention from your point of view Mikhail um yeah we mentioned the state six, six the transport system already yeah uh which is a real real roadblock mm-hmm. uh state stage seven city in decay is is like this ru- ruined uh place and it has this trash compactor area which uh looks very star wars like uh yeah. where where you find a lot of uh debris and uh hulls and bits and pieces of uh ships and creatures you've actually killed uh, up until that point uh, yeah and um it's there's not nothing really gimmicky about the stage uh, it's just very hard there are a lot of enemies and there are a lot of projectiles being fired at you and up at, at this point in the game i started use uh using a cheat code uh to give me full weapon power-ups um right but it didn't really make uh, make it much easier, actually, because there, as any uh, uh, game of the genre, it has a dynamic uh, difficulty ranking. So the, mm. in this case, uh, the most simple type of it, uh, it's tied to how powered up you are. So the more power-ups uh, you're... Uh, 
wielding, the, the more enemies uh, want to kill you and the more projectiles they fire up. So if usually when there's a turret or a flying enemy, they fire one single bullet. And only after a long time, if you haven't killed them, they fire one again. But now they start firing off volleys of bullets. Yeah. So, yeah, I was still dying a lot. And, uh, yeah, I did. So there in the version I played, I didn't have a infinity mode. So I did have to restart from checkpoints uh, and try to do it again. So I've, I've lost count of the times of the, of the amount of credits uh, I threw into it. And, you know, just trying to see through the end of the game and... I'll I'll we'll discuss that uh, that part a little bit better. Just if I can really claim to have beaten the game or not. Spoiler, I don't think so. No, well I'm the same. <laughs> As I say, this is kind of you know we give context. We have this kind of self-imposed rule, which is to beat games uh, as far as possible, at least to normal credit roll. So. By that token, I have done this, but as I say, I, I only feel like I've done it by hook and by crook. I don't feel like I'm uh, a true R-type completer, certainly not the second game, which I find is ex- extraordinarily difficult. Um, so, yeah, in a way, it's, yeah, it's partial apology, but also I didn't want us to never cover R-type because... I mm-hmm. I personally haven't got the skill or patience to beat those games, so yeah. it's a it's a compromise. Uh, but yeah. thankfully, due to cheats and uh, yeah other other resources, I can say that I have played played these games through more than once. But uh, yeah, I don't yeah. feel like yeah I I certainly don't feel I have any uh, claim to being good at these games. Having said that, the R type dimensions does keep. Uh, high score leaderboards based on your first credit score and i am top of my friends leaderboards for both r-type one and r-type two so that's something and for number <laughs> of lives <laughs> yeah got leaderboards for number of lives as well hasn't it which um yes it's quite galling to look at sometimes yeah 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 for infinite mode, infinite mode. so there are a number of key ports. The PC Engine one we've mentioned. So the PC Engine was NEC's 8-bit console with a 16-bit graphics card. Um, but there was a 16-bit version of it in America called the, called the Turbo Graphics. Uh, the game. I don't originally... think it was actually oh, okay. 16. I think it was still the same chipset. Uh, same hardware. Um, okay. They just they just went harder on the pushing yeah. the 16-bit graphics. So right. Okay. Uh, yeah, and it looks it looks very different. The Japanese version is sort of small and cute and white, and the American version is kind of very grey and and uh, me- mechanoid looking. Definitely uh, not but, the size of a bag of skips. No, the, the American version. <laughs> that that picture is so famous. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it originally came on two card, uh, Hudson Hudson cards. I think they are Hugh cards, and uh, yeah, the game was split into two by four levels. So on import. This game would cost you around about 120 pounds or more to play in uh, in this country at the time. Uh, it was highly desirable, but uh, it was all it was approaching arcade perfect. But as as Mikhail said earlier, wasn't arcade perfect in actuality as close as it looked. Uh, it later came out on a CD when they released the CD add-on, uh, and that's the version. If you if you've uh, ever bought the PC Engine version on Virtual Console. It will be the whole game that you get. You didn't have to buy it in two parts on Virtual Console. And unfortunately, the due to licensing issues and and rights, the I remember the R-Type games were all withdrawn from the Virtual Console shop. Certainly on Wii at some point. And R-Types, R-Types, the PC, uh, the PS One game is available in America and Japan 
to download on PlayStation for uh, on PS3 and Vita, but not in PAL territories, mm. which is frustrating. Um, the Master System version. By, uh, this was coded by Compile, the people most famous for Puyo Puyo. So you know this one, Dan. And it had an extra stage hidden away in level four. Yeah. Um, so I, the one thing about getting that extra stage is it's on the stage with all the dots. Have you seen how you access it? Mm. Where you have to sort of go to the top of the screen and then sort of in between a couple of objects, you've got to sort of find yeah. the exact right place to do it. There's now, some secret eight- flags even on the original version. Uh, hidden away yeah. in those dots, yeah. So I, d- well, I think it might relate to them. Yeah. So, but I guess Compile just thought they'd take that an extra an extra mile. But for mm. a long time, the only way I could get to that extra stage was by using um, an invinci- invincibility cheat, which we'll hear yeah. about in a bit. Um, and but then that meant that playing the hidden level, you weren't playing it properly. You never got to play it if you did it that way as um, a challenging <laughs> uh, piece of gameplay. It was because if you're invincible, it's kind of pointless. So I spent, <laughs> my friend and I spent, I, I don't know how long, but I remember the, the day we actually did it, it was kind of a morning till evening session, just sat there trying and trying over again, passing the pad back and forth until this one go where I managed to get to the secret level uh, with only one left and then managed to last about, I don't know, 20 seconds and then, and then died. Oh, so, man. But it's uh, it's okay. It's non-canon anyway because it was by yep. Compile, not IRM. Uh, but actually, overall, it was a it was an okay port, right? Yeah, it's quite slow and there's a load of flicker. But um, of course, but then that, we were used to that on the the flicker, especially we were used to on the system anyway. And it was the the best port we could have hoped for um, if we if we didn't have a PC engine. I think at that time for for an eight bit console anyway. So from com slash forum, Joshi Hatsumitsu says, the only version of R-Type I've played and still own is the Sega Master System version. And I know I finished it because before turning on the system, I would hold down right on controller one and up left plus button one on controller two, then awkwardly turn the console on somehow, only to release everything once the title screen came up. And this Herculean task rewarded me with invincibility, not me personally, the ship. Anyhow, I also know that my highest recorded score was 1,010,000 points achieved on possibly the 19th of February 1991. This I know because I actually used the scorebook in the game manual because the coolest people in the world would do such a thing. And on the subject of that manual, it gave me a lot of information. For example, did you know that the R9 travels at a speed of 208 kilometers a second or that it weighs 31 tons? It also gave an outline of the stages, weapons, enemies and bosses. I missed the art of game manuals. As for the game itself, it does suffer a lot from slowdown, which on some shmups is considered a feature rather than a flaw, and I was not that good at it either, hence the use of cheats. Without the invincibility, I never would have got to the very end of that game, only to have to do the game one more time. Only after the second playthrough did I save the universe. That's just how the evil Bido Empire works, I guess. But I wanted to see the end of the game, and I wanted to see all the bosses and their designs. A person who grew up with 8-bit systems just accepted that the home ports of arcade games had to be stripped back, and you learnt to accept it. Having not played any other version, all the alien art design of the Master System version still worked for me at the time. I would have been 10 years old when I played this, so I hadn't seen any of the alien movies or been aware of who H.R. Giga was. So the design was exotic, foreign and strange, and I wanted to explore those environments as much as possible. At some stage, I will purchase and download R-Type Dimensions, as I imagine it is as close as you can get to the arcade version without having to track down a PCB, and I've seen the prices they go for. Very expensive. But in the meantime, my memories of being ten years old, flying off into distant galaxies, invincible as God, blasting away at the flickering, slowdown-induced Bido Empire. 
good time. Now, thinking uh, of the speed yeah. of the um, the R9, I mentioned there, 208 kilometers a second. I've just done a little bit of maths. In a 90-second stage, which is about right, I reckon, that means that each stage is about 25,000 kilometers long. Hang on a minute. <laughs> so that ZX Spectrum conversion... Uh, it was such a remarkable achievement. There's a book about it, genuinely. It's called It's Behind You, The Making of a Computer Game, and it's by Bob Pape, who was tasked by Electric Dreams, which was uh, an Activision label, with porting, doing the impossible, porting a state-of-the-art 1987 coin-op to a not-state-of-the-art 1982 home computer. And doing a phenomenal job by pretty much all accounts. Some people even swear by the Spectrum version over the arcade original. I, I don't go along with that personally, but uh, but it was no doubt a, an incredible thing. We had two three-word reviews just relating to the Spectrum version. Uh, Sean McGowan says, finished Spectrum version, well done. And Gary Blower says, awesome with colour clash. Uh, colour clash being all one word in this case. Steve Norman on the forum said, I remember seeing R-Type in the arcade section of CMVG magazine. That section was always depressing because no matter how impressed you were with the rest of the games in the magazine, you ended up there and your heart sank as the enormous gulf in graphics was plain to see. And R-Type really highlighted that gulf. The arcade machine version was a stunner. But my first and only experience of actually playing the original R-Type was on the Spectrum in the late 80s. Despite the arcade screenshots and st uh, still being burned on my brain, I still bought it based on the Spectrum screenshots. For a home computer conversion, it was also stunning in its own right. The sprites were incredibly detailed and often huge, and there was so much colour, which is something us specy owners weren't used to. Unfortunately, I was rubbish at the game and never got far at all, but that didn't stop me loving it for months on end. Any other memories, Dan, of the uh, astonishing Spectrum port? Uh, well, I think the Master System version kind of supplanted it fairly swiftly. But I suppose but so. But yeah, yeah, I did spend a lot of time on this. I, um, I think I must have had to have used a poke of some kind to cheat. Because I remember getting to the ending of this one. I think there's like even more ships turn up for the Spectrum ending. But, um, but yeah, I remember it being just way closer than any conversion I've seen, especially after the dreadful Gradius conversion that, that we'd got, mm. which um, I was so excited for. I um, I prefer Gradius as a game, so for that to have sort of twisted round in the home ports, I found quite sort of shocking, stilting and shocking at the time, like, whoa. Um, yeah, it made me realise just how good R-Type was that I hadn't quite realised in the arcades. Amazing work. And there was also, of course, uh, uh, an Amstrad CPC version. I don't actually know if it was also by Bob Pape. Normally the Z80 versions were done by the same team, but I'm not sure in this case. I certainly don't think of the Amstrad CPC version as being as lauded as the Spectrum version, which, it, it, so it's not up there. We've talked before about the Amstrad CPC ports of things like Contra and Ikari Warriors and Renegade being famously some of the strongest 8-bit ports, but I don't think of that with our type but that's my inexperience possibly thankfully we have alex 79 uk from the forum who says our type is one of my favorite scrolling shmups i've never had the chance to play it in the arcade but enjoyed countless home versions of the game over the years i first owned the game on the amstrad cpc computer on a cassette that cost me one pound 99 on the if i remember rightly activision budget label Again, if I remember rightly, it was a multi-load cassette, which meant that you had to load each stage upon completing the last. Sounds annoying, but never actually mattered since I only ever got to level two. <laughs> the game itself was fantastic. 
The detachable bot type thing you could fit to either the front or the back of your ship allowed for some super tactical gameplay and the power-ups were pretty cool too, eventually filling up the entire screen with various lasers, missiles, snake-like bullets which crept along the perimeters of the area. You'd get to a point where you were just annihilating everything on the screen but of course as soon as you died you'd be reset to your bog-standard gun and have no chance. Memories of lining up a row of enemies and taking them all out with a well-placed charge attack come flooding back as I write. The boss at the end of level 1 has to be one of the most iconic in history, an awesome beast that took up most of the screen as you zip in and out of danger to pop his weak spots. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, I never really got much further than this as a young kid. Over the years though, and on other versions, and especially with the help of Infinite Continues on MAME, I did eventually see the whole game. I'll be very interested to hear the general opinion on what the definitive version of this game is, as it's one I've not been back to in a good while and would like to revisit soon. We'll come to that. Uh, so there's also, I found earlier, an unofficial 2012 Amstrad CPC version for 128k machines by a uh, amateur independent coder called Easter Egg. And it's remarkably impressive, but... I think it would only really be for Amstrad CPC enthusiasts, not people who wanted to play R-Type. Uh, then there's a whole saga surrounding uh, a game called Catechis, uh, which was being coded by Rainbow Arts by Factor 5, the people we know best for Turrican and the Rogue Leader games. Uh, this caused an issue of Zap64 magazine to be delayed by several weeks as they were supposed to be running a demo of this game. Uh, on the front cover the issue being that Catechis was a fairly blatant uh, R-type clone programmed by uh, Manfred Trentz who uh, yes. also did, uh, the great Joanna sisters exactly right yes famous famous for uh, famous for quality ripoffs uh, so <laughs> what happened in the end was that they took uh, Catechis back and turned it changed it somewhat into Dinaris, which I ended up having the Amiga, and it was still really obviously an R-Type clone. Um, but uh, Activision agreed not, as I as I understand it, basically Activision agreed to not to take any legal action against Catechist stroke Dinaris, as long as Factor 5 coded the C64 and Amiga versions of R-Type for them. You're hired. Yeah. So it worked as a worked as a job interview, um, and actually both those ports are all right. Neither of them are absolutely outstanding, stellar arcade perfect ports. Um, the Amiga one, obviously, being slightly closer to the arcade machine than the C sixty four, which has some limitations as you'd expect. But actually, they were done, I think, under extreme time pressures and are both perfectly serviceable. Also, each features a an exclusive title screen tune, different tunes for each version. Hulesbeck, the, the, the mighty Chris Hulesbeck and Romero Vaca on C64, and Chris Hulesbeck and Darius Zende on Amiga. Uh, and it's a favourite tune of mine, even though it doesn't really relate to our type in any way. So 1989, December, it took a good two and a half years for R-Type 2 to come out. I remember when this arrived in the arcades and... I remember thinking it looked really, really cool. It had this sweet opening sequence where your ship blasts off in kind of 3D. Uh, and the first level seemed like uh, it was a statement of intent. It was all a bit harsher and a bit more urgent and somewhat more challenging, although still quite doable. And then from level two onwards, I, I who knows how many thousands of credits I've 
used on level two of R-Type 2. And yes, I've only seen the rest of this game uh, by cheating, frankly. Um, it's... <laughs> Uh, I like what what they did to the look of it. Um, I think uh, that as it, it it's even much more of a uh, step up graphically than uh, the first one was, right? Yeah, there's so much so much detail in the in the graphics, and this is really where you can see uh, the the Nazca effect take place. Uh, it looks very comparable to uh, X Multiply. Um, mm. Armed, armed uh, police force gallop or cosmic cup uh, undercover cops uh, gun force and then later on those uh, those metal slug and uh, metal slug games by by Nazca that that type of really uh, intricate detail yeah there was a level the 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 equivalent of the battleship level in this game uh, was I, I seem to remember seeing it on the attract mode if I recall correctly although. Doesn't, I'm not sure. Um, I think it's this case where the home versions don't do the arcade track mode successfully. So I'm sure I remember seeing the the sort of burning sunset sky of that that mechanical environment and the, and the battleships. Or maybe maybe it was somebody good playing it. I don't know. But I remember yeah. seeing that and thinking, God, that looks awesome. I really want to get there. But um, as cool as level two looks, amazing. I still love the fact that as you fly across the water, you leave spray in it, and when you shoot. Uh, you you let the, the the water kind of erupts around your your beam weapon. Um, some yeah. of the enemies look fantastic. These the smoke trails behind your missiles uh, when yeah. you uh, fire them off. Yeah, there's these fiery fish which uh, I, I find okay now, but they were the bane of my life in the arcades of of 1989. I just couldn't cope with the fact that when you shot these things, they went they went screaming towards you in a ball of flame, um, or screaming towards the the surface of of the uh, of the level anyway but yeah the, i i think this this still looks excellent actually and uh uh it sounds quite different they uh the the sound was handed over to masahiko ishida uh scrap handed it over and he said he trusted his abilities um and obviously they he'd, he'd got to grips with the uh, the fm sound chip because this has drums and guitar sounding stuff um and yeah it's extremely it's kind of a pretty pumping soundtrack which matches the intense and urgent on-screen action but i have to say 28 years on the game is just way too hard for me yeah so you were talking about finding stage two uh difficult i already found uh the first the first uh boss night night impossible <laughs> the uh Dub Keratops in, in uh, disguise uh, yeah. in armor, yeah, because <laughs> he has this. Uh-huh. Everything is is perfectly fine with him, but he has this like this trailing eye laser thing that mm. sort of homes in on you. It's just I found it such a nightmare to deal with. You know, now uh, I've kind of figured out where you need to be, mm. but it took me so many tries to even get past that uh, boss. And I was familiar with that stage. And that boss, because it's in state, it's basically stage super two of super R type, yeah. right? So, and I've played that quite a bit, but yeah, the arcade version, or let's say R type two, is just so much more harsh. Um, but here, yeah, here's an interesting point to make, I think, because it, this was a usual thing, right? We've seen it with Con- uh, Super Contra as well. Oh, as, yeah. At least the first couple of levels are way harder than uh, the original Contra's levels. Yeah. Um, these kinds of arcade sequels were usually made for the fans because if they could breeze through the first R-Type 
and they wouldn't uh, make it harder. They would breeze to the second one as mm. well. And there's the cynical part uh, aspect of it. You know, the, your your old cliche of the the coin munching arcade game. But I think that's also just one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is that actual fans, diehard players of this genre and of this game would want that game to be much harder than the yeah. first one. And the arcade operators obviously don't want people having 45-minute goes. So yeah. it made yeah. it made perfect there, sense. Yeah, but there's the, the fan aspect of it as well. Like, no, it's completely, know, yeah. R-type fans would actually want uh, the sequel to be harder and have a new challenge all over again. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, Dan, did you play this in the arcades at all, this one, or any of the home ports? Uh, I played it a handful of times in the arcade and quickly realised yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 first time um, no, I think I quickly realised that it wasn't for me and that it would have just taken my money just to try and see more of it um, I don't quite know yeah, why it didn't grab me in the same way I, again, I think it was just the sheer difficulty of it and the feeling that it was kind of cynical, again, I can see the, the point that it it's made for the players, made for the fans but for me at that time it, I just sort of ducked out um in yeah. the time since I played a bit of uh, Super R Type, which is obviously sort of yeah. a version, um, mm-hmm. and in some ways even more brutal. Uh, but I really do enjoy the uh, the Game Boy ver- or the Game Boy Color version. Um, I spent a lot of time with that over the years because I suppose it's just like, a little bit easier and <laughs> the screen's a little bit smaller and what have you. Um, but yeah, I've really enjoyed that version over the years. Yeah, well, let's let's go on to that now. We'll come back to the rest of R-Type 2. R-Type DX by Bits Studios, um, Game Boy Color 1999, based on the prior Game Boy ports of R-Type 1 and R-Type 2. A sto- extraordinary in, in itself when you think about it. <laughs> but, um, uh, so it contains all the changes made to, made to the Game Boy uh, ports. Uh, when played on a Game Boy Color or Game Boy Advance, uh, you have a choice between the original monochrome Game Boy versions or with enhanced color versions. Uh, there's also a DX mode, which combines both games into one long story mode. What a cool idea. Uh, And when played on an original Game Boy or Game Boy Pocket, obviously you can only play the monochrome versions. Uh, Yeah, so I I never played this, but I knew it was meant to be a... um, I mean, because I was playing R-Types at this point on the PS1, so I didn't really see the point. But actually, yeah, portable R-Type back in 1999. Obviously now you could have an arcade perfect compilation if somebody released such a thing. Um, But yeah, no, it sounds like Bit Studios did a great job. It's superb. It still sort of knocks me out to this day. I've played it a little bit in the run-up to this podcast. And um, I used to play it a lot on the Game Boy Advance. I never had a Game Boy Color myself. But it was one of those where even though the cartridge stuck out of the end of the Game Boy Advance, <laughs> yeah. it didn't quite fit, um, I'd still try and shove it in my pocket because it was one of my favorite games to play on the system. Um, yeah, it's it's absolutely remarkable. If you ever get a chance to have a try of it, it's. It reminds me a little of the Spectrum version in that it just seems to be sort of punching so far above the weight of what yeah. the system is supposed to be able to do. Mm, absolutely. Uh, so in R-Type 2, you pilot a slightly different ship, the R9C Warhead, um, which comes with a few new options. There's a green search laser, a grey shotgun laser, which you only get a few levels into the game. You won't see that if you die on level two. Uh, and there's a scatter bomb to go along with your your missiles. Um, we won't have time to go through the 
the six stages reduced from eight in such details. Uh, but yeah, I've already mentioned that I'm you know, talking about being familiar with the early stages. That's even more true in this game. Um, <laughs> but there's some really, really uh, spectacular uh, stuff later on. We're talking about the sort of the puzzly interlocking um, mechanics of of the first game. There's some even more astonishing stuff in this yeah, the level. Sliding, the sliding path, right? Yeah. And you have to really pay attention to the backgrounds there to see which path they will be taking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even yeah, and, more, there's a richer color palette, uh, deeper parallax. I wouldn't necessarily like say overall it's like a better looking game, but it, obviously technically there's more going on. Um, it's I think more the, imposing looking as well. Yeah, it's, the original uh, remains iconic, um, but the sequel's definitely, uh, it's definitely cool. Yeah. And, and you know, the... the big visual highlight of R-Type 1 was the battleship stage probably something that made the, uh, most, the biggest impression on, on uh, most people uh, so uh, it's interesting to see that they try to one-up that in stage 3 uh, where you uh, don't have one single battleship mm. but mm. there's a, a fleet of them <laughs> where you have some yeah. Yeah. so I, it's, it doesn't make the same impact as that state that uh, stage 3 of the first R type did like the yeah. big battleship, but it's cool to see them try anyway. Yeah, uh, and I don't know anyone personally who can legitimately really get anywhere with R type two. Uh, I know obviously there are people out there that can play anything, do anything, complete this game without losing a life, and so on and so forth. But I can't really understate just how challenging a game this is i'd say it's i would regard it as one of the hardest games i've ever attempted to play and certainly one of the hardest games i've repeatedly attempted to play because despite it being well beyond my skill level i still enjoy trying to uh, to get three or four levels in <laughs> and uh yeah uh yeah there's like there's a there's a sort of mid boss in level two which is uh, it's a it's a one-off enemy that gives you an idea of what the stage boss is going to look like and be like but that mid boss is harder than the final boss of enemies in many games <laughs> if, <Yeah. laughs> especially if you're not if you're not prepared yeah. for it like yeah uh i've yeah. got I've, i'm still getting better at this game i'm still getting better but it's yeah it's it's painful at times just how hard that game is and the checkpoint system is obviously super r type doesn't even have checkpoints but Checkpoints are harsh. Uh, I remember having the Amiga version. There was also an ST port by the same teams, uh, just slightly less colourful, uh, probably slightly less beefy sound. But Arc Developments, who were quite a renowned team at the time for doing uh, arcade conversions, uh, the graphics were recreated by hand, in-house, pixel by pixel, by uh, artist John Harrison, as he didn't have any of the original resources. And I have to say, they did a really, really good job with it. But overall, it played slower than the arcade, and the PAL version played even slower than the NTSC version. So it was it was equally difficult, but also like playing in treacle. So it was accurate and successful in all ways, bar one quite important one, which was a shame. But I still, I still played that first and second level a lot of times. Um, yeah, to no to no gain really. So Super R Type arrived on the Super Famicom and of course the Super Nintendo ninety one to ninety two also arrived on Wii Virtual Console in two thousand and eight. So as we've said, it's a kind of remix or arranged version of R Type two with something like four all new bits, new new stages. Um, but this game is perhaps best known 
as well as the punishing difficulty with no checkpoints. Yeah, it was my first, as I said in the beginning, it was my first uh, encounter with uh, with R type, and uh, yeah, it's definitely the slowdown is uh, damn near crippling at times, and it doesn't take much for it to kick in. Um, what the 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 uh, interesting thing about it is that you can actually start using it because you know firing off your charge shot will really slow down the game so you can try to enforce it at difficult moments in the game so uh, <laughs> to make it more manageable yeah. so you can give it some direction so that's an interesting part to it uh, to playing it um but i st- because it was my first uh first encounter with R type i still have kind of a fondness for it and the soundtrack is just kick-ass uh, 16-bit super nintendo music which also makes it quite fun to play uh, for me um, it was uh, it was very cool the concept of it at the time i mean it arrived in yeah 91 92 so R type 2 was still only relatively new at this point it was very cool the idea of having a a near arcade uh perfect but well not really but it looked again. It looked it in screenshots and and had yeah. had it looked it looked apart. Not yeah. quite the the high density of resolution of the no. arcade version and that that level of detail, but it approached it uh, quite closely. Yeah, we were only a couple of years off from those aforementioned eight bit console uh, computer versions. So it was uh, so it was it was exciting in that in that respect. I'm sure it sold a lot of copies actually. Dan, you also yeah. played it, yeah? Um, yeah, a bit, and I've played it. I tried playing it recently. Yeah, played it recently. It's probably not the right word. Um, yeah, I played it a little back in the day, and I don't remember it being as hard as it is, but I suppose we could say that about any number of games that, <laughs> that we talk about from these sort of times. I do like how it's not exactly whole stages that are sort of remixed and supplanted. It's um, Well, yeah, it is remixed. It's There'll be like a chunk of an arcade stage, then a new section of a yeah. stage and, and it's it's sort of it's just quite exciting if you're used to the arcade version it's quite a nice sort of mix up let's hear from the forum suits says the version i played for the podcast is super r-type on the super famicom with original hardware and a nintendo scoremaster joystick the vivid colors and sprites really popped off the screen with the black backing of space and as the sun went down and my dining room got dark it got even better explosions looked cool and the weapons upgrades always made for an interesting visual experience i wouldn't say that the game is hard to play it's just hard to progress with any great momentum no checkpoint is perhaps an arcade throwback but and i'm but i'm fine with that actually it's not because the arcade does have checkpoints um, <laughs> hard is good as long as it's doable and generally the harder something is the more rewarding it is when you finally get past it i soon realized that it wasn't a good tactic simply grab every power up that came your way certain power ups were better for certain situations your little floating buddy thing that comes along with you is handy he brings a whole new element to the gameplay and learning how he controls and what you can do with him to be effective was enjoyable and something i wasn't expecting from the outset the continue process makes the game playable from a progress perspective. Infinite continues is great. Keeping your ship upgrades almost makes it feel like a roguelike in ways too. Although it made lives pointless as such, it did give a ladder system to the score chasing side of things. Again, something I'm sure which was a hangover from the arcade. Controls felt a little sticky at times, maybe not as precise as you'd hope when navigating the caves and trying to avoid pickups that you didn't want. 
due to its nature and difficulty, you tended to learn the levels quite a bit. Level 3, to me, started to become enjoyable to the point that I didn't mind starting over, each time learning the spawn points and where the weapon upgrade ro robots were. Those silly kamikaze ships that zigzag up and down the screen were very annoying until you worked out how to deal with them. The boss on the third level was where I ultimately started to feel like I had had my fill with Super R-Type, which was a shame. The trial and error with learning his patterns, followed by an insta-kill and having to go back through the whole stage again, started to wear on me after an hour on that one section. When it was good, it felt great. When it all came together, the music, the weapons, the smooth flow felt stylistic. I feel like I understand the genre's positives a bit more now. My biggest issue with the whole experience, though, was the slowdown on the SNES. It's disastrous. To the point, just by shooting, you can control the pace of the game. I did start to use this to my advantage as I got used to the game. By continuously shooting, you kept the game in a sort of slow motion mode. Doing this gave you extra time to study the enemies and choose a route through the level. Letting go of shoot sped the game up. It took a considerable amount of enjoyment from the game for me. It would be interesting to know the story behind the slowdown, as being such an early SNES game you'd expect the hardware horsepower to be there. It makes you wonder whether it's it was a programming rush or issue with the porting that caused such criminal hamstringing of the performance. I did mess about with the level select a bit and try other levels, but it left me a bit cold. Also, the slowdown seemed to get worse as you went further through the game as the screen generally got busier as you progressed. Eventually, I'd refrain from shooting just to get through bits quicker. What a shame. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so third parties um, all had problems with slowdown on the Super Nintendo early on, pretty much. So... Uh, so as you say, in 1998 and 99 in uh, other territories, IREM and uh, ASCII Entertainment released R-Types, which added, a, of course, an FMV CG intro, which does not look that great in 2017, in my opinion, uh, but it was quite cool at the time. Uh, it has a library of interesting extras, genealogy, history and data from both of the games. And the PAL version was 50 hertz, but it was full screen and somewhat optimised, so not quite full speed, but, uh, but not yeah. fully slow either. I, uh, that's the version I've played, and I must say it feels quite good to play, actually. Uh, and there is, an, uh, in the option screen, uh, there is a very curiously, curiously named option that I had to look up in the manual what it actually meant. But in the manual it says that if you select that option, you can set the arcade speed, uh, which speeds uh, yes. up the game ever so slightly. That's right. So um, it, it's almost like a uh, somewhat primitive uh, 60 hertz mm. uh, <laughs> option uh, in... Uh, in that aspect. I remember that. I didn't keep it once uh, once it was available for uh, other systems. But yes, it was. Uh, I, I remember being very excited when that came out. It was also released at a sensible mid-price range. So so fortunately, there is another way to play R-Type and R-Type 2 in near as damn it arcade perfect form, other than MAME, of course. Uh, illegal emulation or grey area emulation, depending. Uh, preservation or, uh, preservation too <laughs> we're, yeah obviously in many ways we're fans uh, and also PCBs that is another way but yes they are not cheap you are looking at sort of 400 to a thousand dollars depending on condition and things like that maybe more for a, a cabinet with all the the marquees and everything but Southend Interactive developers based in Melmo Sweden I don't know if they are still going but they're, they're a name I've heard uh tozai games i guess was the distributor brought r-type dimensions to the xbox 360 in 2009 xbox live arcade obviously i bought this instantly hugely exciting uh, especially as i i think i yeah didn't have r-types by this point 
anymore. I'd sold it, I guess. Uh, no source code was provided by IRM. The game was reverse engineered. They added the infin infinite mode that we mentioned, local and online co-op. There is, of course, because they have to uh, add optional updated polygonal graphics and there's actually quite a cool seamless transition you can press a button and it fades from one to the other plays identically and I have to say I don't think it looks any better uh, in fact I think the pixel art has more personality more character but I think the polygonal version is actually perfectly okay it doesn't offend me there's some actually some quite nice lighting effects with the the force casting light on the backgrounds and things like that and uh, I think people could actually be forgiven for playing with the polygonal graphics on if, if they found the, the pixel art too too retro uh, of course achievements and trophies and online leaderboards and all that stuff and yeah this is how I play our type now uh, well I've, I've seen this uh, version in, uh, in videos and one thing I really like about it is that you can switch from uh, the 2D graphics to the polygonal graphics at the, with the press of a button and uh, it's just an instant transformation. Yeah it is uh, although it's occasionally easy to do it by accident because uh, it is it's like it's just there on the, on the y button and on, on the left bumper but yeah it works yeah. and you can muck around with the camera angles and there are some retro effects and stuff you can do but generally i play with the the classic graphics on uh, there's no like um enhanced sound of any kind or anything like that they, they've just left the audio exactly as it was so it's emulated it probably doesn't sound exactly as it would have done coming out of a original coin up but it but it's it, it sounds like i remember it sounding so yeah as far as i'm concerned this is the way to play r-type and r-type 2 currently bizarrely it took five years between the xbox 360 and ps3 versions to come out i have no idea why five years 2014 it arrived on ps3 um and yeah it's not it's not expensive. It's still available on both, as far as I know. Considering the popularity of the three, or the lack thereof in Japan of the Xbox brand, again, that's quite fascinating that for five years that wasn't available to the Japanese market, isn't it? Yeah, I have no idea what, what happened there. The new graphics remind uh, me of, um, you know, those sort of like porcelain face filters that girls seem to use on, <laughs> on profile pictures nowadays. It sort of gives me a look at, like, it's got a sort of real sort of gloss and sheen to it. But then I do find myself forgetting that I've I've kept it on the pixel graphics sometimes. Sometimes I think, oh, I'll go back to the retro graphics, and then suddenly realise that I was already looking at the retro graphics and they've still they've just held up in my mind. Crazy. Yeah, I had that with um, Halo Anniversary as well. Interesting. Uh, so, other than those Spectrum reviews we had earlier, we only had two three-word reviews for this legendary game, but uh, perhaps uh, Dan and McGill could service us with those. Yeah. Uh, Sebular, or Sebular, uh, gives us hard as nails. Michael Ledward, a.k.a. Mike Leddy, first arcade love. Thank you. Guys, uh, that's from Twitter, at Rince. So, to summarise our type, very difficult. It's one of those games that's been part of my life for yeah two-thirds of my 45 year life and it becomes you get to a point where it's hard to kind of think about it in any way objectively well it's, it's always impossible to be objective but you you get where i'm coming from uh i can't imagine what it would be like coming to our type for the first time now but what i can say is that it's one of those games where when i knew this show was coming up i was thrilled to be playing it again uh, even despite the fact that I've been deeply mediocre, if that, at it for 30 years. And that's the first game. The second game is just 
yeah it's just way too difficult for me beyond me um and that's a shame i'd really love to be able to come on here and say yeah i've completed these legitimately even one credited or or no missed them would be amazing uh, but i don't think i'm ever probably gonna muster the time and resource and things like the checkpointing and the difficulty are things that do prevent perhaps our type and our type two from being among my absolute all-time favorite games but that said i would definitely consider r-type an all-time classic uh, definitely if you don't have r-type dimensions or some other way of playing it uh, get that if you've still got a ps3 or 360 around it's backwards compatible on xbox one so you can play it on xbox one um, buy it for a few quid and see what all that magic was all about you might not feel it all now and you may not want to persist with it but you can at least have a blast through it with infinite mode and see some uh, astonishingly important seminal influential pixel art and uh, 16-bit sound i guess yeah uh, iconic was the word i used at the start and uh, and i maintain that and i hope we get to revisit the series in future cana rinses and those many spiritual successes as well uh Mikhail. Yeah, um, where to even start with this one? Uh, maybe I'll start with uh, Duncan Harris's uh, quote you read in the beginning. Say it's a f- saying uh, it's a fundamentally flawed game. Uh, I don't agree with that at all. Um, he waxed poetic about the aesthetics and the uh, innovations, and of course the um, force pot is a major innovation. Um, even though it has, has only been really iterated on by obvious R-Type clone games, such as uh, Last Resort uh, and Polestar uh, and numerous other, uh, a couple of other uh, Neo Geo shooters that have uh, this sort of attachment to them. Uh, the Charge Beam is an innovation that has extended beyond its, beyond its uh, genre because you've seen it come back uh, in Mega Man uh, with the Charge X Buster, for example, and numerous other games that use a charge-up attack. Um, yeah, this was really, to my knowledge, the first instance of this, this happening. Um, but apart from that, um, I don't see any fundamental flaws with R-Type. Uh, the only flaw I can see with it, and that's certainly not a fundamental one, is that the second half of the game is definitely much harder than the first one. That's where the game really gets mean. But in other aspects, I think it's uh, it's uh, a near-perfect game in the sense that it uh, has a very clear vision and it achieves what it uh, sets out to do. And there, there are... It's, it's often moving away from the, the label of a memorizer, which we spoke about earlier... R-Type is often also called a the thinking man's uh, shooter, isn't mm. it? So this this is all about the stage layouts. This all alludes to the stage layouts and to the management of your four spot. Where do you attach it? To the front, to the back? Where If you let it um, uh, fly separately. It, and this aspect of the game is hugely enjoyable for me. Um, it's a very divisive game. In the uh, in the genre, uh, even a lot of fans of two uh, D shooters don't really get on with R type. Mm. Um, 
But I think if you let go of the idea that it's a memorizer and that there's really only one way to, to get through it, you find that there's a lot to experiment with and a lot to have fun with. And I'd imagine if you don't have to get through the whole game just in time for a, for a podcast, you can, if you get on with it, you can spend so much time just taking the game apart and making your way all through the ending in the end without having to use any continues or, or better even. So... Yeah, it's it's no wonder that R type next to Grady is is the exemplary exemplary uh, stage navigation stage hazard hazard navigation type uh, 2D side scrolling shooter. Uh, it's a monumental game and definitely deserves to be uh, played and uh, taken in if you're in any way attracted to uh, 2D shooters. Thanks, Mikhail. And conclude, as usual, with our guest, Dan. Well, I don't think there's a whole lot more I can say about the, the arcade experience. I think Michael's really summed it up there about the game itself. But what I found fascinating in working towards this podcast is playing all those different home versions and, and portable versions. Um, oh, also, we missed the um, mobile port from .mu, which, is, um, oh, yeah. which controls badly if you're using a touch screen but if you're using a bluetooth joypad or something it's fine it's a <laughs> it's a good arcade conversion um just thought I'd throw that you played you played it so um, um, so we didn't have to right? yeah exactly um well, the android <laughs> version was 10p at one point so um so yeah i picked that up but um but yeah playing all of the, the different versions they've all got something to them from the commodore 64 version made in who knows what amount of time that's got a real sort of pacey, nippy feel to it. I suppose being closer to a to Catechist or Katarkis, whichever we're going with. Um, yeah. Right, the Master System version, again, feeling like its own thing. Obviously, they've all got the same basis, uh, the same, essentially, the same uh, enemy layouts and what have you. But they all seem to have a bit of personality and flair of their own. And that's what I've really enjoyed about this. So I'd say for whatever hope systems people have got at home, if you've got a retro console that will run this, like dig out an old odd version. Um, if you haven't played the arcade one, obviously go for our type dimensions. And so you've got something to compare it to, but yeah, it, the, my real surprise has been our um, type DX. I think going back to that, um, it, gave me a real sort of warm fuzzy feeling um so yeah i can't really go any further than to say yes it's an absolute classic i was thinking earlier is it even in my top 10 of shoot 'em ups and it would be somewhere in that sort of like bottom half but again i mm. i love it to pieces as we've all said it's been part of our lives um so uh, i'm gonna finish really cheesily and say it's our type of game <laughs> <laughs> somebody had to do it <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, my dream would be, as with a lot of these series, would be for somebody to release a compilation with all the key games from the series uh, for current machines. Yeah, uh, with the with the R Type Command games as well, because I don't have a PSP, so yeah, I right. no way to play it. Yeah. Okay, well, dream on, and maybe we'll return to the series uh, in some future time. But it remains for me, Leon, to thank Mikhail, Dan, and Editor Sean, as well as our correspondents, and, of course, to all of you for listening. Remember, if you've enjoyed this and our other shows, please consider heading to Patreon, our Patreon page, and donating that minimum of a dollar a month. If enough of you do this, we can make double the amount of Canaan's shows in the future. Imagine. We could already be thinking about doing more R-Type. 
Uh, next time, in issue 277, you are not crazy, you are not dreaming. It's time for our Life is Strange podcast. <laughs>